Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. It's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. So the other night we were eating sushi at a bowling alley. (laughs) That's the end of the story right there, really. We were eating sushi at a bowling alley. We had a couple of really great experiences during that excursion. One, when our house guest, uh, who actually just left today, we miss him terribly. Um, When our house guest was dining on some sushi, he elbowed his vape off of the table. Right, or as he calls it, uh, his robot cock. And uh, it smells like cotton candy. We really enjoy it being around. But anyway, so he elbowed it off the table and he couldn't reach it. So he's bent over all crooked, trying to reach for his vape under the table with chopsticks, which he is not very adept at using. The waitress came by and said, do you need any help? And and he said, because I think he thought it was you. And he said, no, I'm just looking for my robot cock. It was one of those perfect moments. Perfect moments. One of those moments. Throughout life, we do the same things over and over, and we experience the same things over and over. And Kat and I are always on the outlook for a unique experience that we've never had before. Mm-hmm. That was one. That was one of them. Mm-hmm. Bowling alley sushi and retrieving a robot cock with chopsticks. We had another one today when I got my new glasses in the mail, and uh, <laughs> I said, uh, what do you think? And you said, you look like my mom. Yeah. That's never happened before, uh, so... We need to talk about that, I, th- <clears throat> I think. Anyway, over the years, I think we've all come to know and love spam messages in our email box. Oh, yeah. And depending on, upon who you ask or who you speak to, spam messages represent up to 90% of all emails sent. That's ridiculous. Yeah. But when did spamming actually start? Bulk emailing. Some point to a date as early as 1978. That's when a man named Gary Thwork sent an email to more than 400 people that had an ARPANET address. (laughs) And he was a marketer for a company called Digital Equipment Corp. 
And what he sent was a promotion, a promotional message to 400 people. So technically that would have been, I think the first piece of spam. But since this only went out to 400 people, many say that wasn't the first bulk email and that the first documented case of spamming happened uh, in 1994. It happened on Usenet. And at the time, Usenet had more than 6,000 discussion groups. This was, again, 1996. This was the first, uh, first major spam event, and it was sent by the legal services of Lawrence Cantor and Martha Siegel. They specialized in immigration law. So even though these people on Usenet uh, had no need for their legal services, for the most part, they became the first official recipients of a spam message on the Internet. Not surprisingly, this message was sent in all caps. <laughs> the couple claimed, the people that, that sent it out, the uh, attorneys, they claimed they made $100,000 from their spamming. And even though it caused a great deal of backlash, they, remain, they remained unrepentant. Ultimately, they lost their hosting service and Cantor was disbarred. For sending spam? I think there may have been more to it than that. Oh, Okay. <laughs> They were a husband and wife team, and they ended up writing a book about spam advertising. It was called, quote, How to Make a Fortune on the Information Superhighway, and it's still available on Amazon. Pro tip, don't buy an internet marketing book that uses the term information superhighway. But it was two years later, in 1996, that another event took place on the information superhighway, and some say that it was some sort of spamming. Others call it the Internet's oldest and weirdest mystery. I love a mystery. That's why I love June's Journey, available <laughs> on all devices. Sorry, you go ahead. It began as a series of mysterious early Internet posts, and to this day, more than 25 years later, people have no idea what the meaning was. These messages were titled... Markovian Parallax Denigrate. And these also showed up on Usenet in the, in the uh, discussion system. But there was good reason to wonder if this was more than just spam. So it began sometime around August 5th of 1996, when hundreds of these odd messages began showing up in discussion groups across Usenet. At first, they just seemed to be a string of nonsensical words described by Atlas Obscura as terrible slam poetry. <laughs> but the one thing that all these messages had in common was the subject line, Markovian Parallax Denigrate. Okay. Nearly all of these messages have been lost, mostly because people assumed that it was just uh, gibberish. But Google's archive does still have one of the original posts, and I'm not going to read the whole thing because it's fairly long, but let me give you an example of what it sounded like. Again, subject line, Markovian Parallax Denigrate. Quote, Jitterbugging McKinley Abe, break Newtonian interfering caw update, air collaborate, rue sports writing, rococo, invocate tussle, shadflower, Debbie Sterling, Pathogenesis Excretory Adventurous Novo, Most Chairperson Dwight Herzog, Different Pinpoint, Dunk McKinley Pendant Firelight, Uranus Episodic Medicine Ditty. 
That sounds like a code I would use to recall a PIN for a credit card or something. Yeah, you have this very, very strange system of remembering your PIN codes. I know for the number five, your code is Jackson. Please don't share any more of it. Oh, yeah, no. So this goes on for several paragraphs just like this. In 2012, The Daily Dot did a pretty in-depth article on Markovian Parallax Denigrate. They say some of the users on Usenet had a hypothesis that these words were some sort of a secret code, like you were saying. They actually were compared to the broadcasts of some of those enigmatic Cold War numbers stations in the Soviet Union. I think we may have touched on that at one point. And even though there have been multiple attempts to decipher it, to date, no one's been able to detect any kind of hidden meaning. And some of the world's best cryptologists have given it a shot, and they've come up with nothing. There's another theory that these messages were part of an early experiment of some kind of chatbot. Again, 1996. Yeah. They thought uh, the thought was that Markovian was related to a calculating process that was called a Markov chain. This had been used in programming chatbots at that time. But if, in fact, this was some sort of a primitive experiment with chatbots, the person responsible behind the programming has never been identified. No one has ever come forward to make a claim, and no one has been identified as perhaps behind this. Huh. Now, the author of the Daily Dot article, a guy named Kevin Morris, says that one line from that one remaining archived message says that it comes from a person named Susan Lindor, and they contacted Susan Lindor And Susan Lindor denied any involvement in the Markovian parallax denigrate messages, which Hmm. is weird. Yeah. The simplest answer about these messages is that it was just created by an early internet troll. It could be that uh, in this early world of the internet, (laughs) sending out a bunch of gibberish to strangers and creating a mystery surrounding it was just done kind of as a joke or, or a hoax or a stunt. Certainly, the Usenet evolved into a vastly more complicated and advanced internet that we enjoy today. But back then, that may have seemed clever. I don't know. Mm. Now, here's a strange twist to the story. Getting back to Susan Lindor, according to Wikipedia, this is what I found out about her. She's an American journalist and former U.S. congressional staffer who was charged with acting as an unregistered agent for a foreign government and violating U.S. financial sanctions during the run-up to the 2003 invasion of Iraq. Huh. It was March 11, 2004. That would have been eight years after these messages started showing up. She was arrested in Tacoma Park, Maryland by the FBI. She was taken to the FBI office in Baltimore. Outside the office, she told a reporter for WBAL-TV, quote, I'm an anti-war activist and I'm innocent. I've done more to stop terrorism in this country than anybody else. I have done good things for this country. I worked to get weapons inspectors back to Iraq when everybody else said it was impossible. She also said in an interview with Scoop, that she was charged and held in detention under the U.S. Patriot Act. She said this was to silence her from revealing what she knew about 911, about the 9 11 
terrorist attacks, which was that the airplane hijackings were used as a public cover for a controlled demolition of the Twin Towers in Building 7, and that the perpetrator, Mohammed Atta, was a highly trained CIA agent. She was incarcerated in 2005, but released the next year after two judges ruled her mentally unfit to stand trial. Huh. The government dropped the prosecution in 2009. In 2010, she published a book about her experiences. Now, it's been over two and a half decades since Markovian parallax denigrate posts started populating Usenet. And even though there have been plenty of theories and conspiratorial guesswork, the mystery is no closer to being solved today than it was back in 1996. And if this is, in fact, a code, it seems unlikely that anyone's going to crack it anytime soon. It is, in fact, one of the Internet's oldest and weirdest mysteries. Markovian Parallax Denigrate. Huh. There's a lot to that to chew on, isn't there? There really is. And I don't know why, but my brain goes, I'd like to look at that, see if I can figure it out. Of like, course you like, would. Of course, uh, of course I could. <laughs> yeah. You know, like the rest of the world hasn't been able to, but my dumbass could. You know, <laughs> sometimes, Katrina, your toxic traits, not cool. <laughs> I find it adorable. <laughs> my source information, Atlas Obscura, Wired, and Wikipedia. And yeah, that, uh, that Susan Lindor. Very interesting. Very interesting indeed. Yeah. I don't know. Suspicious for sure. I don't know what to make of that. Anyway, there you go. Have fun, kids. We'll go ahead and post that one surviving message from 1996, and maybe one of the freaks can help you figure that out. Oh, they I believe in. (laughs) The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. You know, as your kids get older, there are some things about parenting that gets easier. I remember once hearing my sister tell my little niece, if you put your pants on, I'll give you some Fresca. And when kids can start to reason that they get something if they do something right, it's a lot easier to manage them. Having that conversation about money with your kids, that's not the easiest thing in the world. Fact is, kids won't really know how to manage their money until they're actually in charge of it. And that's where Greenlight can help. Greenlight is a debit card and money app made just for families. Parents can send money to their kids and keep an eye on the kids' spending and savings. While kids and teens build money confidence and lifelong financial literacy skills. Your kids will learn how to save, invest, and spend wisely thanks to the games that teach kids skills in a fun, accessible way. When I was a kid, I had expected chores and then I had bonus chores. And bonus chores were where I earned money. And so if you're thinking like, hey, my kids should be doing stuff around the house. Yeah, no, you're not wrong. But maybe there's extra ways that they can learn how to be a successful financial money person. What was one of the bonus chores that you had to do? (sighs) Rub my mom's feet. And what did that pay? I don't know, like a quarter or something. Millions of parents and kids are learning about money on Greenlight. It's the easy, convenient way for parents to raise financially smart kids and families to navigate their life together. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free when you go to greenlight.com slash oddities. That's greenlight.com slash oddities to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash oddities. I've got to tell you, the longer we've had our aura frame, the more I love it. I have kids, 
and they live about 3,000 miles away. And my daughter is expecting a child, and she has been sending me updates on her baby bump through the aura frame. And since I can't be there to experience it with her, it's the next best thing. And speaking of mothers, if you're looking for the perfect gift to celebrate your mom in your life, Aura Frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames. It allows you to share and display unlimited photos. It's super easy to upload and super easy to share photos with the Aura app. And here's the thing, if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. We love Aura Frames and living so far away from family, thanks to Aura, it's the next best thing. It's like, it's like almost being there. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Box of Oddities freaks can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off, plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code Oddities at checkout to save. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com and use code Oddities at checkout, and you will save. Thanks, Aura Frames, for bringing my family a little bit closer. And now, that thing in the middle. Residents of the Galapagos Island of Floriana don't have a formal postal system. They've addressed this in a very unusual way. Everybody just throws their mail into a barrel, and tourists are responsible for sorting through the mail and grabbing any parcels that they can deliver on their way to their next destination. We got a message from Ness on Instagram. It says, my very first boo effect. I'm an AFOL, which I had to look up and means adult fan of Legos. And my Google (laughs) feed will randomly give me Lego stories, as it should. Today's feed included an article about the great Lego spill. And today I was listening to Box 449, where JG talks about the great Lego spill. I was so excited. I'm planning my trip to the UK so I can go beachcombing for Lego. Nice. My hope is to find a dragon one. Good luck to you. We also got several messages from people saying it's not Legos. It's like Lego is considered the plural everywhere in the world but the United States. Oh, really? That's interesting. Vicky sent us an email, curator at theboxofoddities.com. Hi, you lovely people. I listen to a few podcasts as well as yours, but I have never felt compelled to write in until listening to your recent episode, Box 450. I paused it to send this email. Years ago, my mom told me about a family incident involving either her great-great-grandparents or some other great-great member of the family. It must have been back in the uh, 1900s, and it was here in the UK. Back then, all those years ago, it was often the case that one part of the family would send a parcel across the country for the rest of the family. It would usually include a recipe and the dry ingredients to create it, along with maybe some small items of clothing and such. This particular parcel was received, and the delighted recipients happily opened it and got to work baking the cake using the ingredients as usual. The included letter was set aside on the mantel, and the empty packing box discarded. The cake was baked and set aside for after tea. No idea what they had for tea that day, but it was shortly followed by said cake. As the last of the crumbs were being eaten, the letter was opened for the family to read and enjoy. 
The letter was full of the usual family updates that Facebook couldn't provide back then. William is doing this. Cousin Sarah is doing that. Right. She says, I'm not good at history and I have no idea what they would be doing back then in my distant family. (laughs) The letter was signed at the end, as usual, followed with a short P.S. It was reading the P.S. that no doubt had the most impact on the family. It simply said, P.S., We've sent your uncle's ashes this time, so please take care of them. Oh, my God. No. Like, but they <laughs> yeah. they didn't, though. Yeah. Right? No. Uh, hmm. Oh, no. So what Vicky no. says, lesson here is, always read the literature. Nobody needs to be a cannibal. Lots of love and smiles from Hull, UK, Vicky. Amazing. Great story, Vicky. Oh, God, I hope it's real. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industry shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We were watching you during that story that Jethro just told. We saw what you were doing. Damn, you turn us on. This is The Box of Oddities. The Mercer Williams House is located on Montgomery Square in Savannah, Georgia. It was designed by architect John Norris, who moved to Savannah, where he found a successful career building houses, churches, and lighthouses. In 1860, he designed a home for General Hugh Whedon Mercer. The design included Greek and Italian elements and added a touch of Renaissance revival as well. Ooh, it sounds fancy. As tensions were rising approaching the beginning of the Civil War, Norris went back to his home state of New York and construction was halted as Mercer was enlisted in the Confederacy. General Hugh Whedon Mercer, side note, the great-grandfather of celebrated songwriter Johnny Mercer. Really? Mercer ended up selling the unfinished structure in 1868 to John R. Wilder, and he moved to Baltimore. So no Mercer ever actually lived in the Mercer house. Wilder finished the home 
And the Philadelphia red brick home was a masterpiece. 15-foot ceilings, floor-to-ceiling windows, a 60-foot entrance hall. It's got a matching carriage house and a private courtyard. It takes up an entire city block by itself, and it's the only private building to do so in Savannah. It sounds like one of those classic, monstrous, elaborate antebellum mansions. Well, I guess since the Civil War started, it would just be bellum. Bellum? Yeah. Is that a thing? Maybe it was just a bellum. <laughs> I'm not superstitious, but I'm a little stitious. <laughs> anyway, um, Wilder completed the construction in 1869, but then he died about 10 years later. The home at that point was known as the Mercer Wilder House. And the Savannah Shriners moved in. The building served as the Shriners Temple until the 1950s. Unfortunately, when the Shriners moved out with their tiny, tiny cars, the <laughs> building sat vacant for a bit and, and fell into a state of neglect. It was during this time that an 11-year-old boy named Tommy Downs wandered into the home. He went up to the roof it's thought that little Tommy was hunting pigeons when he stumbled to his death. Oh, no. He fell off the roof and was impaled oh. on the beautiful wrought iron fence oh. that surrounds the property. There is some speculation that Tommy was not alone when this happened. It's been alleged that a friend of Tommy's claimed that he saw the whole thing and it was as if something or someone had pushed Tommy to his death. Not long after the tragic demise of Tommy Downs, Jim Williams purchased the property. What year was this? 1969. All right. He bought the house for $55,000. Williams was obsessed with Savannah's history and architecture and was known locally as an antique dealer and preservationist. Williams, of course, was horrified at the state of the three-story home by this time and set to renovations. Well, I thought you were going to say he was horrified that a little boy was impaled on his fence. But no, he was horrified with the condition of the property. Yeah, it, it, it had fallen into disrepair. Uh -huh. Which is still better than falling onto a fence. Oh, I see what you're See, because you... Yep. Made yep. a thing. There's a, a child. Yeah. A child died. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So the two-year restoration process brought the home back to its original glory, even though it was now tainted a tad by the death of a young boy. Mm -hmm. And some say the ghost of that young boy, the tortured young soul, reportedly uh, hangs out at the house, reenacting his final moments of oh. his life, caught in a loop of horror, forever falling from the roof to the fence. People have witnessed this? That's what they say. Wow. Sounds like it would be a residual haunting. Right. And we've talked about this before, the different types of hauntings. And I guess the residual haunting is kind of like the energy plays back as though it were like a tape. Right. Playing back an event if it was traumatic or they, whatever. They say that it happens in an area where there are high concentrations of uh, granite or carbon. Mm, or like that lake and fringe. Exactly yeah. right. So Williams decided that he was so pleased with the end result of this restoration that he would make this house his permanent residence. And the house was decorated with beautiful pieces from Williams' private collection. And in the next decade, he ran his restoration business from the carriage house of the now Mercer Williams house. 
Williams was known to throw wild, extravagant parties, and he was a bit of an eccentric. I guess at one point he was disgruntled by a movie crew shooting a movie called The Ordeal of Mr. Mudd. Apparently it was a made-for-TV movie about Abraham Lincoln's assassination. Oh, sure. So Mr. Mudd was the doctor who reportedly had nothing to do with Booth's plan, but he helped had helped him. Because he broke his leg. Right. Yeah. And that's where the term, your name is mud, comes from. Is it? Yeah. I thought it was from that Primus song. Or that lake from Fringe. William demanded that the film company make a donation to the local Humane Society. And when they refused to do so, he hung up a huge Nazi banner (laughs) on the front of the house. Wow. Because he thought it would interfere with their filming. Sure. Not because he had any association with Nazis or or felt Nazi-ish in any way, just because he thought, well, they won't want to film here if they're going to get Nazi banner in the background. I think any film director worth his salt would uh, forego that, yes. Maybe take a minute and go, yeah, that doesn't fit with no. the vibe. Mm-mm. He did later apologize for one terrible oversight. He had forgotten that a synagogue was located directly across oh, from the no. square. Yeah. Oh, no. So it, it really sucked. Um, anyway, it was also during this time that Williams was in a secret relationship with his much younger assistant, 21-year-old Danny Hansford. And it was apparently a pretty tumultuous relationship. At one point in a heated argument... Hansford pushed over a grandfather clock and, according to Williams, pulled a gun. This was in the study of the Mercer Williams house. Hansford's gun jammed, leaving Williams just enough time to grab his own weapon and shoot Hansford in self-defense. Allegedly. Allegedly. Now, this may seem like a familiar story to you, and it's because the story is retold in the 1994 John Barrent book, Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil. Ah, uh, yes. Hansford was renamed Billy Hansen in the Clint Eastwood-directed movie uh, and was portrayed by Jude Law. The house, by the way, is also featured in the movie's adaptation of the book. With no Nazi banner. With no Nazi banner. Okay. Good. Now, prosecutors claimed that Williams staged the scene to make it appear as though Hansford had fired at him. He was taken into custody and charged with murder, and he would actually be the first person to be tried four times for murder in the state of Georgia. He was tried, found guilty. There was an appeal. There was a hung jury. And in May of 1989, the trial ended in his acquittal. Now, there are those that say that the house was never a quiet place for spirits. And it was alleged that Williams became so distraught by Hansford's lurking spirit that he reached out to a voodoo practitioner to rid Hansford's soul from the house. Now, whether or not this is true, I I cannot say. But less than a year later, Williams was found dead in the study of the Mercer house. Apparently, his heart had stopped not far from where Hansford's body was found. Wow. He was 59. He apparently had some sort of pneumonia that led to heart failure. Allegedly. Allegedly. Now, since Williams' death... People near to the house have reported paranormal phenomena. Many tourists who walk past the house over the years, of course, captured by the absolute beauty Mm. of this home, 
want to take pictures. Uh, but instead of just the house, they're also capturing ghostly images. Like in the windows and stuff? Mm-hmm. Wow. People working within the house have time and time again reported feeling a presence. Some have also reported phantom parties when the house was empty, which are said to be residuals from William's extravagant parties. But most frequently, it's reported that Williams himself appears in full apparition form walking up and down the hallways of the house. What is the house now? A private residence? It's a museum. It's a museum, so we can go there. We can go there. It's located at 429 Bull Street. The house is open Monday through Saturday between the hours of 1030 and 410, and Sundays between noon and 4. But if you go to the house, or if you go to the Mercer Williams House Museum website, you'll see no mention of there being paranormal activity. And that's because... Jim Williams' sister is the current owner, and they are pretty tight-lipped about any sort of Mm. paranormal goings-on. You Mm -hmm. see nothing on the website about it being spooktacular. I wonder if they will allow people to go in and do ghost investigations or if they're just totally against that idea it's unclear apparently they don't do anything to like nick's discussions of it but they they really don't encourage it i see so okay anyway i definitely think we should go also we should go back to savannah anyway just for delicious breakfast at ret that was delicious oh it was so good beautiful city i got my information from ghost city tours mercerhouse.com, savannahfirsttimer.com, Wikipedia, of course, savannahnow.com, and savannaterrors.com. So as we've mentioned in the past, we have a new post office box so we don't have to forward our mail from Bangor, Maine. Um, It's right here in O-Town, as those of us in the city like to call it. No one likes to call it that. No one at all, except me, of course. And almost immediately, we started getting mail there. And I wanted to say thank you so much to Chandra, who sent me a Mothman sleep mask (laughs) that I don't think I will ever travel without. I love it so much. I want to wear it. So when you wake up in the middle of the night. Stop it. No, it is beautiful, though. As well as Casey in Knoxville, who sent a really nice letter um, that said really nice things that I'm not going to get into. But also, like, a bunch of books by Christopher Moore. So um, they said that this is one of their favorite authors, and it's one of those laugh-out-loud kind of situations. So I'm super excited to dig in. This is going to be my first one, Practical Demon Keeping. Nice. So I love a good spiritual self-help book. (laughs) We appreciate that so very much. Also appreciate those of you who have uh, snuck over to The Shallow End and checked out our new podcast, The Shallow End with Schnebly and Toth. It's kind of like, uh, you know, it's just we celebrate stupidity. Uh, People that do the stupidest things. The good thing about it is it makes you feel better about yourself Mm -hmm. because we've all done stupid things, but chances are probably not as stupid as what some of these people have done. Yeah. So please check it out if you've got a minute. I'll put the link to The Shallow End in the show notes of this episode so you can just click on it and go over there. And we really do appreciate the support. It's just a little baby podcast and it needs some love. It's a little baby. Yeah. Thank you so much and we will see you next time. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you beautiful freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you and its fate is in your hands. Therefore, it's been requested by those to whom I report 
to beseech you for assistance. We ask but one thing of you, to provide a five-star rating and a positive review. True, that is two things. However, tis merely a five-star rating and a positive review. Also, subscribe to us. Okay, so three things is all we ask. Three things and three things only. Henceforth, the Box of Oddities commits to the telling of stories. Stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2022. All rights reserved. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world, plus tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts.